0: So, we were going to do an episode on Adventist education this week, but we had a little change of plans. Instead, we're going to talk about Ellen in real life.
1: Ellen G. White is sort of a mystical figure in Adventism. She's often referred to as a prophet, and with that comes a certain connotation, that every word she wrote on a page was infallible, or or that she herself was perfect, that she was never influenced by the world around her. None of that is quite true.
2: What people don't see is Ellen White's humanity. And to me, it is the key that unlocks the door to who she really was and how God used her. And the reason why I, I, I love her humanness is because I can enter in that door because I'm very human like that.
0: This is Dwayne Esmond.
2: I'm a human being. I I get dressed every morning, one leg at a time. No, um, I currently serve as the associate director of the LNG White Estate.
0: When we decided to reach out to the White Estate, we weren't expecting to talk to somebody so relatable.
2: My father is an Ellen White loving person. My dad is Ellen's little brother. Okay. And, and my father was a minister for many years. I remember one time he got in the pulpit and he preached a message. He used a lot of Ellen White quotes, more than the Bible. And I, I don't know why it incensed me. This was even as a, I think I was a teenager at the time. Maybe the Lord was preparing me for like the white estate and I just didn't know it. But I approached my dad and I was like, Pops, your ratio is off. It's wrong. (laughs) There's way too much Ellen in this message. And later on, I came to realize that that is very, very true. And that is one way in which we have done, many have done great damage to Ellen White's ministry. That is a misuse and abuse of her writings that causes people to run from them.
1: When we went into this episode, we were kind of skeptical. We were expecting somebody who might belong on a shelf, maybe in a 100-year-old archive. And that's probably because that's how a lot of people feel about the church, including Ellen White. It can be stuffy, outdated, and stuck in the past. But Duane's work aims to ground Ellen White's writings and the human that was Ellen White in our world.
2: My responsibility specifically is also editor of the estate. So I handle Ellen White's publications, new compilations, and productions of her writing. I also work with different publishing entities that may have questions about things. I travel, speak on her behalf mostly to make the writings more understandable, to help people use them correctly and not abuse them in in, in ways. So the Ellen G. White estate itself was established by Ellen White in her Last Will and Testament, and it is the organization tasked with the care of her writings. The White estate works very closely with the Seventh-day Adventist Church to care for Ellen White's writings, to protect them, to produce materials that the church may need, or that may meet specific challenges that the church has.
0: The White Estate maintains the online library of Ellen White writings, which are free and open to the public. And this includes almost literally everything, even private letters.
2: I know there's huge conspiracy theories that the White Estate has a hidden vault and that we, you know, keep things that we don't want to blow up the church or discredit Ellen White that's not really true. Usually, if we withhold something, it is for the purpose of making sure that it is accurate, making sure that when it's put into the public sphere or the public square, that it is true to what Ellen White said, true to who she was, and is a benefit to those who read reading.
1: This secret vault rumor speaks to one of the problems with Ellen White. Or maybe not a problem with Ellen White herself, but the way we talk about her in the Adventist church, the way we tend to use her writings and how we take away her humanity and the context that her writings were written in and the way some people elevate her to the status of some kind of demigod.
0: But that's not always how it was. And maybe that's not how it should be. I'm Caleb Eisley. And I'm Nina velado This is How the Church Works, a deep dive into the inner workings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and why you should care.
1: In this episode, we're talking about one of the most controversial figures in Adventism, Ellen White. We'll talk about her writings, the ways we use them and misuse them, and who she really was as a human being.
2: People read Ellen White with a number of different biases. They come to her, some come without any knowledge, but others come with a lifetime of Adventist teaching on her life and ministry with how parents and others have used her ministry. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding that we have to address.
0: We've talked about Ellen White throughout this series. And if you haven't gotten the drift yet, She was one of the co-founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and was married to James White, a co-founder and publisher. Her family was active in the Millerite movement, and when she was 17, she started having visions. We're not going to mince words here. She's come under a lot of scrutiny, and many Adventists, especially younger ones, feel uncomfortable calling her a prophet because of the connotation that comes with that word. Interestingly, Ellen White did not call herself a prophet. Instead, she said she was a messenger from the Lord. And her visions were often confirmed theology that other Adventists had already been exploring, rather than introducing totally new ideas. And she never built herself up to be the final word on anything. Rather, she always pointed back to Scripture and believed in a dispersed leadership structure.
1: Because of this, the Seventh-day Adventist Church didn't hinge on Ellen White in the same way that other religions tended to do with their prophets. It was a different relationship than maybe uh, the relationship between Joseph Smith and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or that of Mary Baker Eddy with the Church of Christ Scientist. While many Adventists do treat her writings like an extension of the Bible— That's not how they should be applied at all.
2: There are very clear hermeneutical principles for interpreting Ellen White's writings that we as the white estate attempt to teach constantly. I mean constantly, because it is not in the interest of Ellen White or anyone else for there to be bad teaching on how to use her writing. So for instance, if someone were to conflate a vision of Ellen White with some personal thing that she said to someone... The first thing we would say is, or ask is, have you read the full context of of both statements? That's the first thing. Have you read all that she has said on us, on the given subject that you're you're speaking of before forming a conclusion? We kind of have some steps that we take people through. And then we make clear that Ellen White was a big believer in time and place. So she has principles that come out of her visions that are eternal, that are very tied biblically to eternal principles, but then there are specific counsels that she gives regarding personal situations. Those are not always meant to be applied in every time and in every place. So you're talking about someone who could, you know, Ellen White could tailor her message to a specific person if God had given her a revelation, but for you to do the same thing that God gave her a message uh, to give to this specific person. For you to take that and apply it, is a misuse of Ellen White.
0: The lore surrounding the person of Ellen White can be difficult to cut through. And she was so prolific. It's hard for the average person to break through the mythology to really understand who she was and what her role in the church was. Duane helped us sort some of that out.
2: Ellen White's role is as she stated that of a messenger sent by God, simply to give messages to a people at a specific time, and that's the role and function. In fact, in the book, I think it's Testimonies, Volume Eight, two thirty-six, two thirty-nine. Testimonies for the Church, Volume Eight. She she says that listen, I am I never claimed no leadership or ownership of this church. I'm paraphrasing her. She says, though, uh, in all the years from 1844 onward, I have never claimed to be leader or owner or the person to whom everyone must listen. I am simply a messenger sent from God, given messages to call people back to his word and back to faithfulness.
1: Like Dwayne mentioned earlier, it's important that when people talk about what Ellen White said about this or that, good hermeneutics are applied. That starts with understanding the context surrounding her writings. There are three texts readers should always keep in mind when engaging with her writings.
0: One, the context of the time and world she was writing in.
2: If we think about the times in which the church was founded, it was a time of, of the great spiritual, second great spiritual awakening within the United States. It was a time when you know you had different winds of belief blowing there were different people who claimed to be prophets during her lifetime joseph smith is about to die you have you have for instance on the origin of the species is about to be printed Karl marx is writing you know is beginning to write his theories that will serve as marxism and undergird the other isms you know in political life that exclude god from the public square and here comes this person to whom God gives a message of a, of a group of people who will have the Bible as their only rule of faith and practice, who will exalt scripture above all else, and who will live in relationship with God based on his word. So her role in the founding is to call the organization out and to call it back to scripture.
0: Two, the context of the specific issue she is addressing. As Duane alluded to earlier, some of her writing were personal letters, dealing with personal issues. Not everything she wrote was a universal principle and guidance to be followed in all circumstances. And
1: third, the context of her personal spiritual journey. Ellen White's writings changed over the course of her life. Some of her most famous works, a writing that was focused on Jesus, like Steps to Christ and The Desire of Ages, were written later in her life after a, a shift occurred in Adventist theology during the 1888 Righteousness by Faith debate. Over time, Ellen White moved from a spirituality that focused more on our works and what we do to one that focused more on God's grace.
0: When we don't bring the context of her writing into focus, we can end up with some pretty legalistic approaches to certain problems that should be addressed with common sense. One of them is the health message. The Adventist belief that a vegetarian diet, lots of exercise and rest is crucial to the mental, physical and spiritual health of a human being. Some Adventists have made this a litmus test for being Adventist or even receiving salvation.
2: Part of the challenge of really understanding Ellen White is that we bring to her time our presentism. We bring all the stuff of today. We project it back like she was living in the same time. So let me give you an example of what I mean. During Ellen White's time, fruits and vegetables were things that were only seasonal. There were no trucks transporting fruit halfway around the country so that you could have it, you know, year round. That was not a thing. So if you found yourself out of season, the one constant that people had during her time was meat. That was the one consistent thing they had, all right? So many people ate meat and ate it consistently because of that reason. Ellen White was a person who traveled as a part of her ministry. There were no restaurants, fast food places to get food very comfortably, healthy food. Many times she was staying with very poor people who understood nothing about a health message or anything like that. And they would place food on the table. In fact, one time she was in Australia and uh, she was really moved by the poverty of the people that she was seeing. And the fact that they only had a little bit, that they only had scraps of meat to eat. That they would, neighbor would slay some animal and then send pieces of that animal around to other neighbors who were starving. And she said, I dare not at that time lecture them about meat or health or diet when they were simply attempting to subsist. Ellen White is a practical person. Let me be very clear about that. She is practical in the application of principle. And now here's where we have the, some of the tension.
1: You might be surprised to find out that Ellen White and many other Adventists at the time ate meat regularly, though she stopped doing so later in life. Ellen White even loved oysters. That might break your perception of her. It certainly challenged
2: ours. She received the health vision in 1863. Ellen White was sickly most of her life, and she believed up until that point that meat was what was sustaining her keeping her strong after her accident. So she ate it because she would have fainting spills, she would be dizzy, and she felt that meat was the thing that would sustain her, give her strength, give her protein. Well, after the vision of 1863, the health message where God says, you know, listen, flesh foods are not for you and should be eschewed, Ellen White then begins to transition. But once again, she's transitioning at a time when different food options are not available. Not always. So at her home and on her table, she would do her best. But sometimes when she was traveling, it was not really an option for her. In 1891, she wrote a letter to her son, Willie, and the letter contained a, a shopping list. And Ellen White says on that shopping list, saying, listen, if possible, you know, find me a can of those good oysters. I would like to have some. (laughs) Right? So so she, she wanted some oysters.
0: So yeah, Ellen White loved oysters. But in 1894, she decided to give up certain foods for good. In
2: 1894, Ellen White, after battling back and forth, makes a very clear declaration with God. In fact, she writes a promise to him and everything. And she says, I will not put food on my table in any way going forward. This is it. I'm done. And from that moment on, she really does not. From that moment on, on her table, in her presence. Here's where we don't think about certain things, or, or we don't we don't understand her fully. During Ellen White's time, especially in the 1870s to 1890s, there was, there was a little bit of controversy as to what shellfish was clean and could be eaten versus that which could not. The church had not settled that issue completely. So when Ellen White is eating oysters, she at that time does not even consider it wrong. That's an understanding that comes to her a few years later when she gives up fish and everything all together. But at the time she did not, the church didn't have that understanding. She said, she wrote to one person, I think she wrote to someone, I have not had a lick of meat on my table since 1894. And then like, in the next couple of lines, or somewhere else, she writes, "Man, we enjoyed the most wonderful salmon last night. It was just tremendous, you know." <laughs> so I'm saying that the difference in in her understanding of the theology and the understanding of clean and unclean meats on certain fronts was not quite clear yet. Ellen White never allowed the church to make meat eating a test of fellowship. Never, the biblical principle was healthful living, healthy body, healthy mind, that God can speak clearly, that we can understand him, that we will have the bodily integrity and strength to do his will. Health ministry, you know, exercise, running, Spartan races and stuff that I do. I mean, all of that is not about me necessarily being healthy. It's about presenting God a vessel that he can use and a vessel that is a a representation of his perfection this side of heaven right so Ellen White is making the point that there in fact she makes this statement I will never say that meat should never be eaten anytime in any place because for some people that's all they have There are some parts of Africa where people, where teachers of Ellen White have misled people into trying to assume the exact diet that she had. When in their society and in the areas where they live, they don't have those resident foods and people are suffering. Some people, are. I know this for a fact, because when I was when I was there doing a seminar a couple of years ago, I had a woman come up to me who's a women's ministry director. She had over 400,000 women under her care. And she said to me, Pastor, we need to come. You need to come to my area and do something on this because it is killing people. So our misunderstandings on this point, now don't get me wrong, even if you don't believe Ellen White, the health studies, the Blue Zone studies, and everything else today should make clear that meat eating, while it's not a test of fellowship, is not the best thing for your body. I I think we're clear on that. now. We don't really need to, you know, fight that point. But what she's saying is, be gentle with people, right? And allow the Holy Spirit to work with them and bring them to His standard.
0: Ellen White's understanding of the health message is another classic example of present truth, which we talked about in episode four, Thus Far and No Farther. It changed and progressed over time. It also shows that Adventist forefathers and foremothers were real people, and they had to figure out how to live their faith and its principles in real life. Not in some vacuum where perfection was possible. Ellen White was human, and she was respected and recognized by the church as having a prophetic gift. There's several rumors about whether or not she was ordained floating around. Some say she was, and have the ordination certificate to prove it. Others say the, quote, ordained designation was crossed off the certificate. According to Duane, both these characterizations aren't quite accurate.
2: Ellen White had ministerial credentials. All right, let me explain a little bit about the difference. In fact, from about 1871 onward, Ellen White had ministerial credentials. On the ministerial credential, it would say ordained minister. There were times during that period of time from then until 1915, when she passed away, there were times when they would cross out the ordained and just leave the minister. There were times when they just put it in to get ordained minister. And I'll tell you why that was. The church did not know how to categorize Ellen White. They don't know what to do with her, messenger, prophetess, you know, lady who stands up in church and rebukes people. What are we going to do with this chick? You know what I mean? What are we going to do with her? So as they credentialed her, there were times when they were unsure of how to do so. So what they would do is they would sometimes say they sought to give her the highest credential that they could so that she could minister in any area of the church that she needed to. However, She was not ordained in the traditional sense. No one laid hands on her, prayed over her, ordained her in that sense as we think of ordination today. That was not how they saw In fact, the church leaders saw her fitness for ministry, her spiritual gift, as higher than ordination.
0: When it comes to the discussion about women's ordination in the Adventist church, which we've talked about briefly throughout this series— Proponents often cite Ellen White's gift and ministry as validation that God calls women to pastoral ministry. But opponents often categorize her ministry as different, thus irrelevant to the discussion of women's ordination. She was in a different category and that's confusing. But with what Duane is saying here, that Ellen White's gift was considered higher than that of an ordained minister, the argument that women shouldn't be ordained in the church rings even more hollow. But that's a story for a different podcast.
1: Ellen White was seen as an authority in the church, or at least she was given the power to dispense wisdom and guidance to the people and bodies that made decisions in the church. And while the culture around Ellen White today often regards her as a final word on important matters, she actually would have condemned that kind of thinking. Even back then, the people in her circles were not always receptive to the messages she shared.
2: Ellen White stood in a camp meeting, and earlier on she had had a vision from God that there was a minister who had, was living a double life, that he had a family in one part of the, the country and he had a family in another part. And Ellen White walks into this tent and James is like, baby, let's sit down. Come on, let's go sit down. Ellen White stands in the back. <laughs> she just stands. And James is like, um, can we just like slide under the radar and just sit down, please? Okay, no. So Ellen White not only goes into the service, she upsets the service. She tells this guy, you are living a double life. It was a painful devastating thing for her to do. She didn't want to do it, but God revealed to her. And that man, that guy later admitted he did. Things like that began to establish her credibility. But as you can imagine, Caleb, when you are pointing out things, when you are addressing issues, everybody is not going to like you very much. And so, for instance, 1888, 1888 Conference, Righteousness by Faith. Ellen White aligns herself with the millennials of her day. Wagner and Jones, justification by faith. The the two young bucks, the the buckaroos, man. Ellen White says, I'm with them. I'm not with G.I. Butler and Uriah Smith, you know, towering figures of the church.
0: E.J. Wagner and A.T. Jones were young blood in a church that had been around for nearly 45 years. The Adventist church was no longer brand new. It was becoming entrenched. But with the next generation starting to step into leadership roles in the church, conflict arose between the old established approach and a new approach. Ellen White felt that the message Wagner and Jones presented at the 1888 General Conference That faith in Christ should be the focus of Adventists was a message that God wanted his people to hear. She embraced change. Not all the Adventist leaders were ready for that change, though.
2: And what happens? What's the fallout from that? They ostracize her, they write against her. She goes on the road after 1888 and travels with these young men preaching this wonderful message, righteousness by faith, justification through Jesus Christ, the sweetest part of Adventism. She goes on the road preaching that thing, and they they get upset. They say, Ellen, um, we know you're 64 years old, but we perceive that God is calling you to Australia to lift up the work, to, <laughs> to to pioneer the work in the South Pacific, at your retirement age, we would we think God is called. She wrote to them. She said, I have no light from God that this is where he wants me to go. But because the church has voted it, I will go. Ellen White's demonstration of respect for authority in this moment is beyond words.
3: You have to keep in mind that a prophet is kind of can be an annoying person, right? So. Tells people, you know, what they may not want to necessarily hear, right? Here's Michael Campbell, a pastor, theologian, and
1: historian we've spoken to throughout this series. He currently serves as a professor of religion
3: at Southwestern
1: Adventist University.
3: So... Ellen White is having to admonish church leaders and say, hey, this is the right direction we need to go. And there were some of our uh, denominational leaders that were quite resistant to that. And it's, you know, it's kind of an open secret that Ellen White really did not see a lot of light in going there.
0: There, as in with denominational leadership. The way we often paint denominational leadership doesn't really allow for us to talk about the mistakes or even the blatant disregard for God's leading leaders have had in the past. But it's telling and frankly realistic that there have been times in our church history when church leadership has taken wrong steps or had wrong motivations. Leaders are human after all.
1: And just like church leaders are human, Ellen White struggled personally and spiritually with what was going on in the church and the series of events that sent her to Australia when she was in her mid sixties back in the eighteen hundreds.
3: She really struggled. I mean, she didn't like sailing on ships first of all because she got motion sickness. I mean, she just hated traveling with you know on a boat. So the whole notion of going halfway around the world was something she did not relish. So she struggled with that. But then as she prayed. Lord didn't give her a vision say you must go or you can't go. I mean, so she had to just really struggle through that to the point where eventually she felt resigned that if the church is asking her to do it, even though she didn't necessarily feel that that's what you know she would have personally chosen. In fact, once she actually got over there, she enjoyed it so much that (laughs) uh, nine years later the church is saying, "Hey, come back," and she's like, "Well, I don't know if I want to come back." So she kind of was. Uh, actually really having a good time. And it's interesting that in the 1890s, while she's in Australia, she writes probably some of her most famous books, uh, Steps to Christ being one of them, Desire of Ages. Again, very Christ-centered, which comes out of this very Christ-centered emphasis after the 1888 General Conference session.
0: Over the next decade that she was in Australia, problems with the church structure and an authoritarian leadership culture had come to a head.
3: By the latter part of the 1890s, the General Conference was at a different point. You had different church leadership. So the General Conference president in 1891, there had been actually two different GC presidents. So there, as time goes on, there's different leadership teams. So the leadership that was there is no longer in charge. And I think there was a general sense that her voice was missed, right? So if you had someone very engaged in the leadership of the church as engaged as Ellen White was, right, as um, a key figure. I mean, she never had a formal leadership title, but yet here she is actively engaged and she's writing councils, involved, heavily involved in the life of the church. Um, I think there's a sense of, hey, we we want her back now, right?
0: Ellen was asked to return at a crucial moment in Adventist history for the much-needed restructuring of Adventist leadership in 1901, which we talked about in episode three, the room where it happens.
3: And then when she does come back, it's also at a critical juncture when the church is reorganized. So I think there was also a sense that hey, we're we're in the midst of needing to change. We want Ellen White back, so uh, she arrives in time for the 1901 general conference session, which becomes you know a defining historical moment in our past,
0: as we mentioned in episode three the restructuring that happened in 1901, which was stepped back slightly in 1903, is really the same system we use today. 1901 is when unions were created to give more space between the long arm of the General Conference and the local conferences and churches.
1: Ellen White's last General Conference session was in 1909. After that, she was too frail to attend another. In 1915, Ellen White died at her home at Elmshaven in St. Helena, California. And with the death of their prophet, Adventism struggled to know exactly what was coming next. How should her writings be applied? Would there be a new messenger in her place?
3: You know, what's her legacy going to be like? And how are people going to interpret her writings, right? And during her lifetime, there were lots of people that claimed to be prophets you know when she first had her her very first vision all the way back in December of 1844 about that same time there's about 50 different individuals all claiming to be prophets but what makes ellen white unique from all of these others is that most prophets at that time what they would do is say hey my writings are the lens the only lens through which you can interpret the bible and ellen white from the very beginning she says the opposite says no you go to the Bible, test what I say by scripture. And so she sees herself as this sort of what she terms a lesser light to lead men and women to the greater light being the Bible. So her writings are always subject to the Bible. And so this sort sets sort of this pattern throughout her life and ministry and Adventist history that we believe in the prophetic gift because we take the Bible seriously. That the Bible says in the latter days, you know, there's gonna be basically there's gonna be the prophetic gift. So there's various passages of scripture that clearly indicate prophecy and the prophetic gift. So, and as a sign of God's end time people waiting for Jesus to come, that they will have the testimony of Jesus, Revelation 12, 17, which is the spirit of prophecy. So this gift of prophecy is gonna be there, but how do you know it's legit? How do you know that this isn't some somebody taking people for a ride and trying to deceive them. And certainly there's been a lot of false prophets during her lifetime. There were at least several dozen individuals who claimed to have the prophetic mantle or sometimes challenged Ellen White. I'm actually working on a book on this right now, prophetic rivals. you know, all the different people claiming basically Ellen White, when someone would challenge her say, well, let's go back to scripture, test my writings by scripture and we'll test what you're saying by scripture and see at the end of the day, that's going to be our criterion. that's going to be our authority, whether your claims or mine are are legit, right?
0: Because the Adventist church did not totally hinge on Ellen White as a person or a prophet, unlike many other religions, Adventists kept busy trying to live out the mission of the church and were not focused on finding the next prophet. Many things had changed in the last nearly 80 years of Adventism jesus had not come yet adventism had become more institutional with many schools and churches all over the world the church was not listless without ellen white but questions about if there would be a successor of ellen white's prophetic gift were swirling about next time on how the church works how should we understand ellen white's legacy in the 21st century and a little true crime story.
3: And literally there's this altercation that's going on. They're fighting, he's fighting for his life, you know, and they make enough noise that the person in the adjoining room calls the police to say, hey, something's going on and the police show up and they find Margaret Rowan dragging his body in a burlap bag and they're carrying shovels as they're going through the parking lot.
4: How the Church Works is hosted by Nina Velado and Kayla Beisley. Thank you to our guests this week for joining us, Duane Esmond from the White Estate and Michael Campbell. You can find bonus content for this episode on our website. It's howthechurchworks.com. This episode was written by me, Heather Moore, with help from Kayla Beisley. And it was produced by Heather Moore. Our episodes are edited and mixed by Nina Vallado. Thank you to Michael Campbell for reviewing and fact-checking our episodes. Our logo design is by Brittany Colby. Website and social media by Chelsea or Nina. Thank you to our tech and equipment expert, Stephen Hussett. The show is executive produced by Adam Fenner, Heather Moore, Kayla Eisley, and Nina Vallado. Special thanks to the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists and the Adventist Learning Community for making this podcast possible. If you have something to say, please email us. It's hello at howthechurchworks.com.